This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. All right, folks, Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. We doing all right? Hampton, way to represent this side of the room. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's good. I, I'm having a, is it echoey to y'all? Or is it just me and these speakers? Cause, okay. Because I'm like, I feel like I'm getting, uh, yeah? Okay. All right, we'll just keep going. Casey's working on it. He's got it. Um, in the meantime, hopefully, I'll, I feel like I'm getting bounced around a little bit. Um, but it's okay. Um, I mean, no doubt you've probably heard uh, Exodus 20 spoken. Now, you may not think like, man, I've got Exodus 20 memorized, but I would bet that you've got a good bit of it um, in your grasp uh, just from living in in the culture that we live in. Uh, But Exodus 20 is where we get the famous Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Right? The Ten Commandments, we've heard those things. Jesus in uh, the New Testament, he doesn't abolish those. Actually, he he ups the ante. Thank you, Jesus. Right? He says uh, in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Right? He quotes Exodus 20. And then he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or man with lustful intent in his heart heart, has already committed adultery with, with her in his heart. You've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely. We shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, if you take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. We see in Ephesians 4, right, this pattern of the old self and the new self, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members, be angry and do not sin, let the thief no longer steal, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, right, Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, Colossians 3, if you have then been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Right? We, we see from Old Testament through New Testament these commands of Scripture. And Jesus says in John 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. To follow Jesus is to follow his ways, his words, his commands. Right? So we, we see these commands and, and we are called to obey them by God. So why are we talking about this and then, and then Mark chapter 2? And it's, it's this, that for those in Mark chapter 2 that Jesus is addressing and for many of us in our culture today, we take the commands of God and we seek to obey them, but deep down we believe that we have to obey them in order to earn God's favor. 
that I have to obey these commands. Jesus says to obey these commands. God says to obey these commands, and I have to obey them. Otherwise, God's love for me is, is less. God's acceptance of me is, is less. And the gospel of grace says that God's love for you is maximally full through Jesus, regardless of what you've done or will do in the future. His acceptance and his love for us is not based on how well we keep the commandments or, or not. It's based on the fact that Jesus kept the commandments for us, and therefore his love is maximally full. But you see in the New Testament, and I believe we see a lot in our culture, especially this Bible Belt hub of, of Texas and the South, or people who have their religious backgrounds, that there is a deep ingrained belief that, they, that we have to do good in order to earn God's favor and acceptance. That if, if I don't behave well, I'm not going to belong with God in heaven. And there are many throughout history who have been very good church religious moral people and have stood before the Lord and he said I don't know you and so the commands of God are important but our ability to keep them is ultimately not what merits our acceptance with God and that's huge for us to get and to grasp and so let's look in Mark chapter 2 Let's read from verses 18 through 22, shall we? Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. I'm going to be real honest. This is a passage that's in multiple Gospels, and I would read it, and I would be like, okay, Jesus, you got to ask a question about fasting, and you started talking about fasting, and then you started talking about sewing up a patch and some jeans and, and wine. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't get it. And so I'd be like, verse 23, <laughs> you know? That, that's how I would approach it so often. I'd just be like, I don't get it. Let's move on, right? And so, um, but that's not how we're going to do this, right? This is the word of God. It is profitable for teaching, for knowing God. There's, there's something in here for us. And so we're going to talk through this. We're not going to be afraid of passages that don't make sense. Just because we struggle to get it doesn't mean it's any less true. So we're going we're gonna to seek to understand what God is trying to teach us when he goes like, hey, fast, let's talk about the hole in your clothes. Let's talk about the wine and the wineskins. Like, okay, what are we doing here, Jesus? So verse 18, we got some curious Cathys roll up on Jesus, and they're like, hey, Jesus. Like, I'm just assuming they got good intentions. We don't know any different. They're just like, Jesus. I look over here, and, and John's disciples are fasting, and the Pharisees are fasting, and Jesus, I look at your, your boys, and they're having a party with Levi. Like, they're eating. They're feasting. What's the deal? Why aren't they fasting? Fasting, if you're curious, is the intentional removal of one thing in order to gain another. 
Right? Fasting in itself isn't necessarily spiritual. Sometimes we, we do those intermit, inter, intermittent, mitten, mitten? Inter, intermittent? Okay, like a mitten on your hand? Mittent? There's another T. Intermittent fast. See, I don't do this intermittent fasting stuff. Like, I'm like, why would you not eat? You know, so some people do the intermittent fasting because they want to intentionally remove one thing in order to gain weight loss or better disciplines or, you know, like there's, there's an intentional purpose for it. If, if there was an intentional purpose, you just forgot to eat. That's not fasting, okay? That's just forgetting, right? And so the, if fasting is an intentional removal of one thing in order to gain another. Spiritually, biblically, people would fast. They would intentionally remove food or drink or sex or work or whatever in order to gain more of the presence of God. It wasn't this manipulation thing like, dadgummit, God, I'm not going to eat until you show up and do what I want you to do. That's a hunger strike. That's different, right? It was, God, I am hungry for your presence more than I am for food, and so I don't care about food. I want you. God, I'm hungry for more of your presence and power in my life, and so I'm not going to work today. I'm going to fast from doing anything so that I can sit and long for your presence. God, I, I hunger for you more than I hunger for sex, and so I'm going to fast from that in order to have more of your presence. Christian fasting, it gets its roots uh, in the Day of Atonement from the Old Testament. It was the one time, I didn't know this, it was the only time in the Old Testament where God commanded fasting was on the Day of Atonement. Anything beyond that day was not a command. It wasn't a bad thing, but it wasn't commanded by God. It was only on the Day of Atonement, the Jewish practice of Yom Kippur, that fasting was commanded. They would remove food and work from that day as a way of spiritually saying, God, we remove everything else beside you. We're dependent on you and you alone. In Matthew 6, Jesus speaks on fasting. He says, and when you fast, Jesus seems to assume that fasting would be a part of, of our lives. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they, will rec they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So fasting is not a bad thing. It was commanded from the Old Testament. Jesus assumes it will be a part of our lives if it is a heart posture for more of God. Right? If it's an inward desire, a pure motive for more of God, Jesus assumes, hey, yeah, that's a good thing. Like fasting is, is okay. So why then is there this question about fasting? Why are they like Jesus? Why are your disciples not fasting? Like what, why this discussion? Don't you love it when you ask a question and someone just answers your question with a question? Jesus does that a lot, right? Jesus, why are your disciples fasting? I'll answer you with a question. Why? Do you fast at a wedding? Right? When you go to the wedding and the, the groom appears and the bride appears, right? Are you, are you fasting for their presence? Are you hungering for their presence? No, that's, that's silly. You don't sit there and fast and be like, I got to wait till the groom gets here before I can eat. When the groom is there, it's time to feast. It's time to celebrate. It's time to eat. You don't fast at a wedding. That would be ludicrous. A, a Jewish wedding has four components to it. 
The first one, I believe we have this slide, is the betrothal. The betrothal is where the groom pursues and initiates a covenant with his future bride. He, in the engagement, the betrothal, the groom has already covenanted to this woman. So that's step one is the, hey, I'm going to marry you. You're my lady. I commit the, the groom covenants to the bride. Then there's the waiting part. The groom then returns back home for upwards of a year to prepare a home for his bride. He goes back home and he gets their house ready. Now, they didn't have texting or email or phone calls, and so you didn't really know when the groom was coming back. There was this waiting part of anticipation. I mean, they knew it wasn't going to be a week or two, but it could be eight months, it could be 10 months, it could be 14 months. There was this, this hungering for the groom to come back so that the groom and the bride could then have their wedding ceremony. And that's where the groom who's already covenanted, now the bride is going to covenant in the wedding ceremony with the groom. There's going to be the celebration of the, the I do's, so to say. And then is the celebration. The, the Jewish tradition of a wedding would often last seven days. Seven days of wedding celebration, of eating and drinking and dancing and singing and fun. It was just this massive overnight slumber party, and they would all just celebrate and feast now, there's a lot of waiting. You leave this up for a second just when we talk. There's a lot of waiting on the front half of it, right? The, the promise by the groom has been given, but now the, the, the bride and the families and the guests are waiting for the groom to come back. There's a hungering for the presence of the groom to return. But once the groom comes back, you, you stop waiting. You celebrate the ceremony, and then you sit down and you eat. And you eat and then on day two, you eat some more. And then you get your, your cup of wine. And, and if the wine runs out, Jesus is like, I'll make some more wine. It's going to be better than the first batch of wine, right? Like you celebrate for seven days. It would be ridiculous. If you're in the wedding, if you're there at the ceremony or the celebration and you're, you're not eating, you're intentionally removing the food and you're like, why, why are you not eating? Well, <laughs> it'd be rude to eat before the bride and groom get here, right? Like, if you go to a wedding, bad etiquette, if you're, like, going through the buffet line and the bride and groom haven't come back, right? Okay, that's bad etiquette. File that away. You're like, that would be rude. But if the bride and groom are there, then eat. Like, that'd be silly to be like, I'm waiting for them to get here. Uh, they're here. No, no, I'm waiting. I'm going to fast. Like, that, it, it doesn't make sense, right? It's, it's silly. And, and that's what's going on here. We have to understand a bigger, a bigger context of this. Throughout the Old Testament, God says that he is the groom, and, and those who place their trust in him are his bride. His church is the bride. And so in our relationship with God, he gives us a picture of interacting with him much like a wedding ceremony in a bride and groom. He is the groom. Gabriel, will you put that back up for me? He is the groom, and he has betrothed, he has covenanted to us already. He took the first step. God takes the first step. He says, I will, I will be your God. I will give my heart to you. He takes the first step. But then there's this waiting portion. There's this waiting for the ceremony and then in the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the bridegroom, and I have come to have this wedding ceremony with any and all who trust in me. 
If you trust me, if you repent from your own way and you trust me, then we're united as one. As a bride and groom are united as one in covenant, never to be separated. Jesus is the groom, and for all who trust in him, we're united with him. And we celebrate the presence of the groom. We feast in his presence. We don't have to fast and wait for his presence. With Jesus, we can feast in his presence. He is here. And that's what's going on here is the, the John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting for the presence of God and Jesus' disciples are feasting because the presence of God is with them. Because he's there and they've trusted in him and they've been united with him. We see it with Levi in the verses just before, right? Where Levi and his friends are feasting with Jesus. And the Pharisees are on the outside looking in and they're like, what? Why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? Right? Like, Levi is feasting. The Pharisees on the outside looking in. Levi's in the presence of God, and they're on the outside waiting for God to come because they haven't seen that Jesus is the groom. Jesus is the bridegroom. You don't fast when the bridegroom is with you. You don't fast and hunger for his presence if he's there with you and you have his presence. So that's what's, what's happening here. The disciples of Jesus are feasting and celebrating with Jesus, and the Pharisees are yet again on the outside looking in, missing out on the feast. So should we be fasting today or, or feasting today? Right? What, is, what does that look like for us? Are we, are we fasting or are we feasting? And the answer I would give to you is both. So Jesus has come, and if we trust him, then we are united with him in a wedding ceremony, so to say. We are one together. My spirit is joined with his spirit. We are one. And just like in a wedding ceremony, we celebrate. But we're also waiting for his return to physically be present in which the celebration will be complete. If you haven't been to a wedding recently, right, you, you go to the ceremony part, and I do, I do, you may kiss the bride, and what happens? Yeah, woo, you know, or if you're a bunch of Aggies, you get some whoops in there, um, you know, whatever it is, right, there's that celebration, the celebration has commenced, but then there's that waiting time for them to take their darn pictures and hurry up so that we can all party together, right? And that's where we are with Jesus. If we've trusted Jesus, the ceremony has happened. Our spirits are united, but we're waiting until the final feast and celebration, but the bridegroom has to come back in and enter back in. And so we celebrate the presence of God, y'all. We have to realize that he's invited us into a life of joy. So we've got to ask ourselves, am I celebrating the presence of God in me? Does my life have the joy of being united with God? Is there a real joy in celebration in our life? But then we're also fasting for more of his presence because it's not been fulfilled yet. It's not been completed. He will return one day, and Revelation says, we will sit at the banqueting table with our groom, and then the buffet will start. Then the seven-day celebration will begin. And it's just going to keep going and going and going. And so we do feast with his presence by his spirit in us, but we also fast for more of him. It's kind of that in-between. 
And so the question shouldn't be, Jesus, why are your disciples fasting? The question should be, why are we not feasting? The question shouldn't be, Jesus, why are your disciples fasting? If they, if they got it, the question should have been, why are the Pharisees and John's disciples not feasting? What are they missing, missing that your disciples have? Why are they continually, and you see it throughout the gospel, on the outside looking in? Where, where Levi and the sinners and the tax collectors, men, they're right up in the party. They're feasting in the presence of Jesus. What is the miss? And, and I want you to listen to this because this is where so many people have a religious belief, but they're missing the gospel. They're good church people, and they have a religious knowledge but they, like the Pharisees, find themselves on the outside looking in. See, the reason that the Pharisees are fasting is that their trust is in the law of self-righteousness. And the reason Levi and the tax collectors and Jesus' disciples are feasting is that their trust is in the gospel of grace. Did you know that there are multiple ways to heaven? Multiple ways to God. I, I know you've probably heard Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, but there, there's actually two ways to, to God. One way is the law of self-righteousness. I obey, and therefore I'm accepted by God. The other way is the gospel of grace. I'm accepted by God, therefore I freely obey. Two ways. One is the law of self-righteousness. I obey, I do good, and then I receive good. And the other one is good is done to me, therefore I go and freely obey. It's a huge difference. And the two are incompatible. We, we cannot have both or the other. We either trust in the law of self-righteousness or we trust in the gospel of grace. Now, keep in mind, both are on a path to the presence of God. Both, both desire the fullness of life that is found in the presence of God. That's how humanity is created, is that we all desire the fullness of life, the fullness of joy, the complete happiness. And, and the Bible tells us that is in the presence of God. Walking with God is where we find everything that we're looking for. And God is holy, he is perfect. He is without blemish. He is without stain. He is without error. And so for us to be in the presence of God, we have to be holy. We have to be perfect. We have to be without error. It doesn't matter if I have completely pure water. If I mix a drop of food coloring, it's no longer completely pure. It doesn't matter if I pour the whole bottle in or just a drop, the complete purity of that water is no longer completely pure. And so if God is holy, for us to be mixed with God, commingled with him, we have to be holy. We have to be perfect and right. And so now listen, here's where the two options come in. The law of self-righteousness, which is what the Pharisees trusted in, it's what they believed in, says if I obey God perfectly, I'm accepted. That is an option for us today. 
If you obey God perfectly, because he's holy, so we have to bring holiness to that union. I can't bring sin into it, otherwise I'm making him unholy. If I obey God perfectly, then he will accept me. He will welcome me in. If every action, every word, every thought, every motive of my heart lines up perfectly with God's commands, he will accept me. Are 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 y'all with me? You tracking with me? That is an option for every one of us and every person on this planet today is if I do that perfectly. So, you're starting to realize, I mean, it's, it doesn't take a lot to figure out, right? Like, well, I mean, I'm kind of screwed. I've already lived a good bit of life, and it wasn't perfect. Pretty sure it's not going to last. The re- so then we, we try to start hustling, right? Okay, well, if I'm believing that, if I'm believing that if I obey, God accepts me, and I'm no longer obeying, well, then I got to really work and hustle and try to figure out how to fix what I broke and remedy my own issues. If I'm good enough, if I'm fast enough at getting there, if I do it better, if I measure up, then I'm accepted. That's what the Pharisees were trusting in, was the law of self-righteousness. And they were on the outside looking in because no matter how hard they tried, how much they repented, how much they confessed, how, how much they went to church, how much they, they did penance, how much, no matter how much they did, they never measured up. And if they thought they did, if they thought they went to church and they confessed their sins and the priest would, would forgive their sins, it was only a matter of moments before they're right back in the record of debt. And so it's this endless rat race, this endless cycle, man. They're, they're revving their engine to get to heaven, to get to God, but they're just spinning their wheels in mud. They're not going anywhere. And you know as well as I do, if you keep that gas pedal pressed, it doesn't go anywhere. That engine's going to burn out. That's the law of self-righteousness. On the other side is the gospel of grace. And that tells me that God will accept me by faith in Jesus. And that transforms my heart to freely go and obey. The gospel of grace says that God will freely accept me, not because of my good works or not because I managed to clean myself up or not because, you know, I managed to behave well. God will accept me because Jesus did that for me. That's, that's grace. It's an undeserved gift. It's an unmerited gift. The grace of God is that Jesus came to live in my place so that I can live in his. And if I receive that option, then my acceptance with God is complete because it goes through Jesus. And then I'm free to go and obey. And I'm free that when I stumble, I don't have to figure out how to work my way back up into God's good favor. I can just claim the favor of Jesus and start right back where I was. There's a a freedom that comes in the gospel of grace that enables me to feast with Jesus and not have to keep fasting and working for his favor and merit. 
The gospel of grace trusts that Jesus was perfect in my place. The gospel of grace trusts that Jesus died for my sins to be erased. The gospel of grace trusts that Jesus rose from that he actually is alive and he offers us that exchange. He will take our sins and give us his righteousness. The law of self-righteousness trusts that I'm good. The gospel of grace trusts that Jesus is good. One of them frees us up to feast with Jesus. One of them makes us have to work nonstop and still come up short. Levi was feasting because he trusted in grace. The Pharisees were fasting because they, th- they thought they had to earn God's favor. The disciples were feasting and celebrating because they were accepted by the grace of God in Jesus. The Pharisees and John's disciples were fasting because they felt they had to be good enough to get the good of God. That's what's happening in this passage. And the two are incompatible. We don't get to work for our salvation and claim grace for our salvation at the same time. The two don't mix. I either trust in the law of self-righteousness or I trust in the gospel of grace, but I don't do both at the same time. That's the illustration that Jesus gives us with the hole in the clothes and the wine. He says two common illustrations. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst. The skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus is saying there's two things, and they're incompatible. You can't put them two together and think it's going to go well in the end. If you take old clothes that have been washed and dried, and and apparently when you wash clothes, they they shrink. The the fabric tightens up when it gets wet, and then it shrinks. And, And so if you take a new, unwashed patch and stick it on an old, washed robe with a hole in it, once you wash that again, the new fabric is gonna constrict and just make the hole bigger. You can't put the new with the old. They don't mix together. Same thing with wine. A wineskin was, was animal hide that was dried out in order to, stole, to, to store water in wine. It was a, a canteen, a thermos. But as it would get old, it would eventually get brittle and start to crack, and it would still be fine for water or old wine. But if you put unfermented wine in an old wineskin, as the fermentation process happens, it causes that old wineskin to continue to expand and crack and crack until it bursts. And now you've got a good Cabernet on the floor. You know, it's just, it's just wasted. Because those two, the old and the new, are incompatible together. The law of self-righteousness, it is an option. But it's the old option. It's the option of the Old Testament. Do good and you receive good. Behave and you belong. Work harder and you could arrive. But God gave that old way in order to show us that the old way is impossible and we need a new way, grace. 
This old way was given because God wanted us to come to the end of ourselves and to realize, Dad, gummit, I can't get there on my own. I'll never be good enough so that we then look up to a Savior and say, I need your grace. Jesus, do it for me. If God didn't create an impossible standard, we would somehow try to figure out how to build a tower to heaven. Make a name for ourselves. And so God gives us an impossible standard so that we then look to him and say, I need you to do what I cannot do. The gospel of grace. The law of self-righteousness is still an option for you today. But no one in the history of the world has lived up to it except Jesus. I don't think we're going to start. The two are incompatible. So where are you today? Our whole lives, we are taught to do more, better, faster. That's like the American way. Do more, do better, do faster. If you don't get good enough grades, you don't get into that college. If your grades are too bad, well, you're a failure. (laughs) Do it again. If you're not good enough, you don't make it on the team. You get get put on that team. If you're not pretty or strong or your personality is not good enough, then no one's going to like you or want to date you or get married to you. Right? Like our whole culture tells us, hey, I'm proud of you if you do well. You can get this job if you check the boxes and you meet these criteria. You will find a mate and someone who loves you if you're desirable enough. Right? That's what our world teaches us, but if we take that mentality into salvation with God, into a relationship with God, we will find ourselves always on the outside looking in, spinning our wheels in mud and never finding freedom of life with God. And so where are you today? Are you trusting in the law of self-righteousness or are you trusting in the gospel of grace? How do you know, you may ask? The Bible says that every person will die and face judgment. We will all stand before God, our judge. And we will be judged on if we are worthy of heaven, of being in his presence. And so put yourself in that courtroom You're standing before God and he's judging you and he says, why should you be in my presence? Why should you come into my holy home? What's your answer? Think right now and just just take a second, put yourself in that scene. What are you going to tell God? Why Why should he let you in? What is your answer? Be honest with yourself. Think about it. What's your answer? What puts you at his table to feast with him? If your answer is anything but Jesus alone, then there's a good chance you're trusting in the law of self-righteousness. If your answer for why you deserve to be in heaven is that you're a good person, 
then there's a good chance you're trusting in the law of self-righteousness. If your answer is Jesus plus I went to church, I believe in Jesus and I did my best to read my Bible and to stop doing my sinful things. It's possible that you're still trusting in the law of self-righteousness. The gospel of grace stands before God and says, honestly, I don't deserve it. But Jesus came to make me right and I'm putting everything in him. I trust that he's going to give me access. I trust God that Jesus stands in between and he covers my sins with his blood and he makes me right. That's, that's it. All I have is Jesus. If, if that doesn't work, then I got nothing. All I, all, I, all I have is Jesus. If your answer is Jesus alone, that's the gospel of grace. So the, the good news is we're still breathing. We're not in that place right now. So if you are trusting in the law of self-righteousness, Jesus invites you to repent. Stop trusting in yourself is what that means. Our acceptance with God has nothing to do with how good we are. It has everything to do with how good Jesus is. Our acceptance with God is not what we've done. It's what Jesus has done. And he's already done it for you. We stop trusting in ourselves. We receive what Jesus did for us, that he gives his invitation to anyone and everyone who will receive it. And the Bible says spiritually, we are moved under the love of grace. That when God sees us, he sees us through Jesus. He sees us as the righteousness of Jesus. What if you're a Christian? So what if you have trusted in grace, right? So this, this isn't for us. I think we all know that there's still the temptation to shift back to believing. I have to do more, better, faster in order to earn God's love. I really screwed up. Like, I thought that I had screwed up before. I've really screwed up this time. I've got, to, I've got to go to church. I've got to go do this. I've got, to, I've got to make things right. I've got Stop. Stop. Jesus has already made you right. We receive his grace and his forgiveness. We receive the position that we have with God by the grace of Jesus. And then we go and make things right. And then we go and, and respond in worship. And then we go and do what he's called us to do. But us doing what he's called us to do does not earn our way back into God's favor. I remember when it hit me that when, you remember what God said to Jesus when he was baptized? Remember, remember what was said? They, they heard a voice, a spirit, of a dove descended and they heard a voice. God the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The pleasure of God the Father was, was full on Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And when I trust Christ, that declaration of God the Father to Jesus is now assigned to me. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. 
pleased, not because of what I've done or what I will do in the future, not because I started some church that made it or didn't make it. He is immeasurably pleased with me because of the grace of Jesus alone. Gosh, wow. I really struggle to believe that. Like I am, I will beat the crap out of myself for not being good enough or not being successful enough or I'll compare myself to this pastor or that church. I'm like, well, I suck, you know, or my marriage is this or my kids are that. I do it all the time and I'm, I feel like I've got to do more, better, faster. That is the mantra that is just burned into my mind and heart and the reality of the gospel is, of grace is I don't. I don't have to do any of that. That God, my Father, is already well pleased with me because of Jesus. And so that frees me up to just go for it. To just swing for the fences because we've already won. Man, I need to receive that. I'm willing to bet a lot if you do too. I think a lot of us, we, we see ourselves how our spouse sees us or how we think our spouse sees us. And we just, we fall short. We define ourselves by the job we didn't get. We're like, man, if I would have done this. We define ourselves by our failures and our mistakes. I am a screw-up. I am going to drop the ball. And there's a boatload of freedom when we realize God doesn't care. His love for us is full and complete in Jesus. That's not what he's aiming for. God's not most concerned with whether you come to church or not. He's not most concerned with how much of your Bible you read, how good we are, how moral and upright we are. God's concerned with our hearts that love him and receive his grace because, because all those things will naturally follow. It's hard for me to say that as a pastor. I'm like, oh gosh, what am I saying? But, but what the Bible says is that when we truly receive his grace and his love, we'll be okay confessing our sins because we're received by God. We'll want to go and serve because we've already been given everything. We're generous with our possessions and our things because I've got the greatest treasure in Christ. So, So where are we today? Where are you? Is there a just load of weight on your shoulders because you don't think you've measured up? You haven't. Neither have I. We haven't. Christ did for us. So we can be free of that. Do you believe that you have to be a good person 
in order to get to heaven. We're not good people. None of us are. Jesus was for us. The gospel of grace is really the only place we'll find freedom in life. That's it. That's where we feast in the presence of Jesus. That's what I want for us. More than a church with all the seats full, more than whatever it is people look for in churches. Those are a dime a dozen. I, I really want us to be a place where we are communing with the living God. We, we are living in the freedom of his grace. We're, we're celebrating. We, we don't sing songs out of concern of if someone's going to hear us or if we said the wrong words or if we're out of key or whatever. We're just like, oh my gosh, the grace of Jesus. And we can't control it. We're just giddy. We can't control it. That doesn't mean life's easy. That just means the grace of Jesus is so much greater that it trumps the hardship. It makes the hard things manageable it actually redeems them and turns them around to be good. Gosh, that's what I want for us. And the devil right now is trying to convince you otherwise. That there's something you gotta do that you won't get there, you're not good enough. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. Don't listen to it. That's not what Jesus says. Let's pray, shall we? God, grace, it's a word that we, I mean, have used so often and we say frequently and, and yet I think, I think it's so difficult for us to grasp because we're, we're so conditioned to think that we have to measure up in order to get to wherever we want to go. That's how I feel all the time, God, all the time I feel that way at home. I have to earn Stephanie's love. God, here at the church, I have to, to work and do the right things. And, and God, I just, I, I think that all the time. I see it in our families. I see it in jobs. I see it with students. God, that we, we have to perform. And that's not how you work. That may be how jobs work, that may be how people work, but that's not how you work. Jesus, you came and you performed for us perfectly. And then your grace is that you give us your perfect record. And you take our imperfect record. That is the love of God that, that we need so deeply to grasp. Spirit, bring freedom today. Life-changing freedom. God, for the person who believes in you, appreciates you, likes you, but they, 
they're still trusting in their good works. They're, they're believing that they have to do more. They have to do the right things. God, open their blinded eyes to see that the only way in your presence is that Jesus did everything for us. And we just have to receive the invitation. We do celebrate you. We rejoice in your grace. And God, we want more. We hunger for more. We fast for more. I don't know what our future looks like, but I know right here today, you want to speak to each one of us. And so, God, we, we open our hearts. We invite you to speak to us. And so, church, I invite you to do that. Just right now, invite God to speak to you. There's no other voice that we need to hear but his. There's nothing else that we need to be doing right now other than receiving his grace. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.